So we have been studying uh, the life of David, and last week we looked at this idea of King Saul. Now, King Saul is the guy who came before King David, but what we looked at last week was really the long-suffering of God. God had rescued his people from Egypt. He had then brought them into the promised land, but it was kind of a mess under a group of people called the judges. And finally, at the end of that period, Israel said, we want a king to be like all the other nations. And God said to them, I will give you a king, but do you understand that in asking for a king, demanding a king to be like all the other nations, you've really broken my heart because you've rejected me as your king. Nevertheless, I will give you a king, and I'll give you the kind of king that you would want. I'm going to give you a king who's an impressive guy, a head taller than everybody else. You want a king to fight your battles, I'm going to give you a king who's a powerful warrior, but he ends up being an absolute disaster. And thus, the, the book of 1 Samuel introduces the deceitfulness of appearances. And it's a theme all through the life of David and all through this book that we tend to put so much stock in appearances, and yet appearances are inherently deceptive. And that's one of the major themes. Now, I, you know, this was not just true uh, in, in David's day. It's certainly true in our day, right? Um, judging by appearances is always a problem. I don't know if you know this or not. Do you guys um, keep up with the English X Factor? But there was a new Susan Boyle uh, this weekend. Have you guys picked up on this yet? I can't believe I've picked up on a cultural phenomenon before any of you all. I saw there were only like 200,000 views on YouTube yet, so I think I'm right at the beginning of the curve on this one, finally. No, do you remember Susan Boyle, 2009, Scottish, middle-aged woman, very kind of frumpy looking, I guess would be the, you know, maybe the best way. I know that's not kind, but that's actually kind of the point. She was not the kind of woman that you would expect to do what she did. She got up, she opened her mouth, and everybody just was weeping at the beauty and the power of her voice. And at the same time, it sort of shamed everybody into thinking that why did I care so much about what this woman looked like that I wouldn't think that she would be a good singer because she was this amazing singer. But here's the interesting thing. Like that has become like sort of the new, sort of the new theme or the new storyline that now when the ratings are starting to dip, they're going to go back and dip into that well again. And so this weekend, we had the new Susan Boyle. Her name is Sam Bailey. She's 35 years old. She's a prison guard from England, talks with a real kind of thick English accent. And same kind of thing. She gets up there. She talks about, you know, how her job is a prison guard, and she's a mom. And she's just not a really attractive woman. But when she opens her mouth and begins to sing um, a song, she actually sang this song by Beyonce, um, everybody just, just started weeping. And now, of course, by Monday morning, there's all this stuff on the Internet about maybe this wasn't just chance that this happened again. As a matter of fact, some people are claiming that this is the fourth time she's auditioned for the X Factor, right? And they seem to be, uh, oh, they, she was a professional singer, sang on cruise ships, if you consider that professional. It is, you get paid for it. Um, so there's this sense in which, like, they know it's orchestrated, people want, they believe it's orchestrated, but here's the thing. We love these stories. 
no matter how cliche. We love these stories, even though this is probably kind of a made-up story, sort of portrayed um, inaccurately in a lot of ways, we still resonate. I guarantee you that if I would play the video of her singing, you would have tears in your eyes. Because no matter how much you know that it's this cliche storyline now in these reality shows of the person that looks like they couldn't possibly have any talent and then they open their mouth and they sing and everybody starts to weep. We resonate with these stories, I think, because we long to know that we ourselves are more than meets the eye. We long to know, we long to hope that there can be more than meets the eye, not just for others, but for us. Because we live in a world that places such huge importance on looking good. We want to believe so desperately that this isn't true. And Hollywood can constantly nurture that hope through show after show, movie after movie, cliche storyline after cliche storyline. Because embedded deep in our hearts is this longing that appearances are not the ultimate determiner of value. You know, um, certainly Shrek was a good example of that, but one of my favorites is a movie. It's a little older. You don't actually have had to have seen this movie to get the point, the irony of, of this movie called Shallow Hal. Has anybody seen Shallow Hal? Okay, so you know uh, it starred Jack Black, Gwyneth Paltrow, all right? Now, here's what I think is fascinating. The, the basic movie, it's kind of a dumb premise. Basically, you know, Jack Black is this guy who only likes to date hot women, and then he ends up meeting Tony Robbins, who hypnotizes him into basically seeing women. Their inner beauty basically becomes their outer beauty, right? And so he falls in love with this woman who's morbidly obese, and yet she looks like Gwyneth Paltrow. So that's the whole point is like he comes to understand that her inner beauty is what really matters. And I'm not going to go through the whole, the whole movie. But here's what's fascinating. I remember when that movie came out, I was watching the Today Show because my, my wife loves the Today Show. Um, I don't really like the Today Show, but I was watching it this time. And Matt Lauer was on there interviewing Gwyneth Paltrow. And it was fascinating because he said, okay, you're in this movie. And she's talking about, you know, how oppressive the idea of feminine beauty is in our culture. I'm like, yes, exactly. I agree. I talk with girls all the time. I have a little girl. I worry about this. I think about this kind of thing. And then Matt Lauer goes, and this is a little sort of uncomfortable to even bring this up, but he shows a picture of the poster of the movie basically showing how feminine beauty is this oppressive idea. And here's the fascinating thing about the poster. He goes, Gwyneth, look at this poster. It seems that you've been photoshopped and enhanced. In other words, her breasts are like twice as big as she normally is. Now, this is Gwyneth Paltrow, right? And here's the irony. In a movie about the oppressive arbitrariness of feminine beauty, even Gwyneth Paltrow has to be altered, photoshopped on the poster. And she had no words. She was a little embarrassed. She basically said, well, you know, I had nothing to do with that. But I don't have to convince you guys the ideas of beauty in our culture, appearances, how you look, are oppressive. The Christianity comes and tries to be countercultural in the midst of this. It's a very difficult thing to do. But that really is where we're at with this passage. All through this book is this theme of appearances and how God doesn't look on appearances, but on the heart. 
So let's dig into this story and see how it plays out here. In second, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 16. One of my favorite songs, Patty Griffin's first record. Maybe y'all don't know that record. You should know that record. She's one of the greatest singer-songwriters of our time. And that first record, Living with Ghosts, is an absolute masterpiece. She has a song in there called Poor Man's House. And I love this line. She says, you know you're pretty enough when you don't ask anymore. You know you're pretty enough when you don't ask anymore. Are you pretty enough to impress? Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, this is after King Saul has been a disaster and he's been rejected as king by God. Now the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel's the prophet, you have mourned long enough for King Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul, who's still alive, he's just been rejected by God, but he's still politically the king. If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. Generally, when Samuel the prophet shows up, it's not a good sign for the town. So they're a little freaked out, right? What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? (laughs) Yes, Samuel replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they all arrived... Samuel took one look at Eliab, one of Jesse's sons, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there, Among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him, Saul, with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp 
Whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you, he will play soothing music and you will soon be well again. All right, Saul said, find me someone who plays well and bring him here. One of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he's a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He's also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, send me your son David the shepherd. Jesse responded by sending David to Saul, along with a young goat, a donkey loaded with bread, and a wine skin full of wine. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, asking, Please let David remain in my service, for I am very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel better, and the tormenting spirit would go away. Let's pray and dig into this passage. Lord, we do thank you for your word, even at times when it confuses us and raises questions. We pray, Lord, that even as we come to your word, Lord, that we would not be put off by superficial appearance, but we would seek to understand your heart as you reveal it, even through this, your holy, inerrant word. We pray now you'd help us open our ears, guide my words, all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, hang on, I'm going to go through this fairly quickly because there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff to say and we're already kind of a little um, behind on time. But, but here's the way we're going to look at this. We're going to dig into this story. We're going to see first that God's ways are not our ways. Then we're going to see how God intervenes and saves his people. And then we're going to talk briefly about what does this mean for us. You ready? Um, so let's, let, let's look at this first. The idea I talked about before, about beauty. Beauty is oppressive. And to be one who would say that appearances don't matter is to be radically countercultural. Not just in our day, but in David's day. Let's face it, it is easier to trust in things that look impressive to our culture. In other words... It's easier to believe in Christianity when everybody around you does. It is. In in many ways, do you understand that you live in a culture that does not support belief in the God of the Bible in all of the institutions and all of the ideas and the cultural discourse? It's different than at previous periods in our history. In other words, to believe in Christianity now, as the Bible explains it and reveals it, is in many ways to believe against the grain of the culture. It's always been against the grain of the human heart. But now it's against the grain of the culture as well. And that's what's going on right here. See, they had, Israel had demanded a king who would be impressive, who would fight their battles for them. And they got that in King Saul. And the story here opens with Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, mourning for King Saul. Mourning the fact that this impressive warrior is no longer the king of Israel. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because if you were here last week, Samuel was the guy that got mad When Israel asked for a king, God said, they've broken my heart. But Samuel actually got mad. But now, he kind of liked the idea that they had a king who won battles. And now he's mourning. He's mourning. 
God asks him in verse 1, how long are you going to mourn? How long are you going to mourn? Samuel is in despair because the king who looked like the kind of king that Israel needed has been rejected. Believing against the grain, believing against appearances always creates a certain amount of doubt. You need to understand, if you're a college student today, that believing in Christianity, believing in Jesus, will feel different than it felt for people a generation or two or three ago. It really will. And sometimes it's hard for us to to grapple with that because sometimes we measure ourselves against sort of people who wrote books and sang songs in the past. And, And you do need to understand that there are certain doubt generators in any culture. And you live at a period in time where believing that appearances are not the most important thing is really difficult to do. I can get up here and talk till I'm blue in the faith, but unless the Lord can help settle the issue of your acceptance with him, not based upon anything you can do to impress him, it's going to be very difficult for you to break out of the oppressive cultural obsession with appearances. And I don't want you to be naive about that. We don't just... You know, we don't just sort of have one night where we talk about this issue and that is able to overcome the thousands and thousands of messages you receive every year about what you should look like, about how you should dress. I remember years ago um, looking at an issue of Rolling Stone and there was this two-page spread of this really cool guy sort of doing a trick on a skateboard and these words, clothes are your armor. And I thought, man, they've really sort of got their finger on the, on the pulse. And not only, you know, do you try to impress or do you try to maybe either be noticed or not be noticed by what you wear, you know, but you're at a, you're at a, a school now where it's like, you know, you've got to go to the thrift stores and you've got to find, like, the cool stuff that is sort of like what everybody else likes so that they think it's cool, but yet it's also different and unique and individual. How do you even, how do you ever succeed in that kind of world, Right. And then, you know, you find something cool, and then maybe it's not cool anymore, right? I don't know. Come look at my closet. You really, I mean, I look at my closet sometimes, and I'm like, is it a sin to be out of style? Because, no, I'm seriously, like, I look at all the money I've spent over the years to try to somewhat be in style, and I just think, gosh, you know, surely something's wrong with the world we live in when that becomes such an important issue. It's easier to trust in things that look impressive, but... Here's the good news I have for you tonight. God has not given up on his people. Even though Saul has been rejected, even though Samuel is in despair, what does God tell Samuel? Hey, I'm not done. Get a flask of oil and go to Bethlehem. And I love that. No fallen king, no fallen pastor can thwart God's purposes in the world. And I imagine in a group this size that some of you have been through horrific crap at churches. I know it because I talk to you guys all the time. And I'll bet, I'll bet a third of the people in this room have been through some kind of crap at a church with a pastor or some significant person that really let you down. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it was your youth pastor who had an affair. 
Maybe it was your pastor who got kicked out because the leadership of the church wanted somebody that was more impressive. That kind of stuff goes on all the time. But here's the good news tonight. Whether it's King Saul, whether it's your pastor, even if it would be me, God is able to fulfill his purposes. Our hope is that God has not given up on his people, no matter how disastrous the leadership. And so God tells Samuel, take a flask of oil, go to Bethlehem. But there's an interesting thing in this little passage, right? Saul, you know, Samuel says, rightly so, if Saul hears what I'm doing, I'm going to anoint another king while he's still on the throne, he'd kill me. And what does God tell him to do? Hide his purposes. Does that bother you? Is God telling Samuel here to lie? And can God do that? Well, he's surely telling Samuel not to disclose the full purpose of his visit. Don't try and explain this away. God says that you are not required in all times and in all places to tell everything you know. It's actually quite a few places in the Bible I could prove that point to you. I think it's kind of interesting because in our day and age, we just think absolute honesty, which sometimes becomes shamelessness, is obviously the Christian way to live. Uh, it's not necessarily. There are times, even in the book of Joshua, where God tells Israel how to trick their military opponents. There are. There are times. Here's the point. These people, particularly King Saul, the rejected king, has no right to know God's purposes. God has a right to his purposes, and he is under no compulsion to disclose his full purposes to these people. God is God, and his ways are his ways. So then what happens? Well, then they go to this little party, right? They gather together. And here's what's, what's amazing about this passage. The prophet, this is the prophet. This is the one God speaks to him and he tells God's people what God has said. Okay? The prophet has a hunch. You'd think if anybody had a hunch that could be trusted, it would be the prophet Samuel. But he's dead wrong, isn't he? He sees these, these sons come in and he looks at that one. And you kind of get because of what God says that obviously this guy is tall. He says, I don't judge by appearance or by height. You know, God specifically singles out that attribute. It seems that what we have here is Saul number two. We have Saul number two. And God's prophet is ready to anoint him. Do you understand the significance of that? This is sobering. God's prophet has a hunch, but he's dead wrong. That's sobering. The one that God's prophet thought would be the best choice is rejected. And all I got to tell you is we should be sobered by that when we think about the kind of people God calls into leadership, the kind of people that God calls into ministry. Now, it's not just the ugly people. You, you can't say that from this passage because actually in verse 12 says that David was handsome. Okay? So it's not just the ugly people, but the point of this passage is that God does not pick people based upon what they look like. But gosh, I wish that was true in the church. Seriously, I wish that was true in the church. There's a, a, a video that 
um, PBS did years ago now, but it's still actually pretty relevant, called The Merchants of Cool. It's about how the media conglomerates manipulate young people through this idea of cool and what is cool and how they market it to you and sell it to you. And I, I, at times we've watched it at my house and then had a discussion about it with students. And I'll never forget one time we were talking about this and also this verse in Proverbs in chapter 28 where it says that basically flattery is a snare. That when somebody flatters you, they're trying to capture you and make you dependent upon them. That's a whole other sermon. But I remember at, we were talking about this and, and one of these kids, um, well kids, one of these students said, you know, it's so hard to live counterculturally and not be sucked in by that, especially when our churches only look to hire cool youth directors. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Because we're modeling something very different than what's going on here. Do you hear about this pastor that got arrested down in Birmingham now for the second time, right? Has this humongous youth ministry and all the, the, all the big churches send their youth in because he's got away with students. And everybody loves him and lifts him up because he can talk and has a great rapport with students. Thousands and thousands of students come to his uh, weekly youth ministry thing that he does. Disconnected from any church, by the way. And he's now been arrested for the second time. We so often put those kind of people on a pedestal. And sometimes there's even fruit. You remember, Saul initially won some really great victories. But in the end... He didn't really care about God's ways, and he was a disaster. So here's what we have. God's people pick really poorly sometimes, and that can be really painful. Maybe there's people here in this room who've been passed over when you really could have been used greatly in God's kingdom, but you were passed over because of appearances. And if that's true, I'm sorry. But unfortunately, God's people need to be saved from trusting in appearances because here even God's prophet was ready to make a huge mistake and anoint Saul number two but God intervenes God has to save us from the saviors we would choose and he does he speaks clearly so Samuel has this gut intuition he just knows it's right but God's word comes and says no I've rejected him now Again, this is, this is a whole other topic that could be um, developed more at length. But I'll just say this. God's word must trump our feelings. There is no hope without it. This is, this is an amazing example of that very thing. God's word trumps the feelings of a very spiritual man who is a leader and speaks for God. And yet he's wrong. His intuition, his gut, his heart is wrong. And God has to speak into that situation to save him from making a huge mistake. So here's the thing. Don't just pray that God would ratify your plans and your intuitions and your feeling that you just know what God wants you to do. What does God's word say? Yahweh picks one who isn't even named until verse 13. Did you pick up that? This is sort of... You know, just kind of the cool literary art of uh, Samuel here, writing in 1 Samuel. The Lord has not chosen any of these. Verse 11, are these all the sons you have? No, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied. Doesn't even name him. Doesn't even name him. Verse 11, send for him at once, Samuel said. Still, doesn't even name him. Will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He's dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. Like four or five sentences he's not even named. 
that's trying to help you understand how completely insignificant and unimpressive this guy is. He doesn't even get named for a couple verses, but he gets anointed. And I love that. This is the first introduction of David and his name. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. David is so unimpressive, his father doesn't even invite him to the meeting. He seems so superfluous and irrelevant that he's not even named for a couple verses. But here's the point. God uses nobodies. As a matter of fact, he delights in using nobodies. And if you are reading the Old Testament and you're wondering, where do I see the good news of the gospel? I mean, I don't really necessarily see stuff about Jesus in the Old Testament. Why should I even read it? Here's one of the ways you see the gospel in the Old Testament. Look for the upside-down kingdom. Look for the way God turns things upside down for our expectation, because in that, you're getting a taste of what God is ultimately going to do in Jesus on a cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As you think about what it means to be a Christian, do you understand that that is the ultimate countercultural agenda and manifesto? That God is using those which the world considers nobodies to do his great work. And as soon as David is chosen, trouble begins. Now, I don't have time to talk about all of this. There's some troubling questions. What the heck is the Lord doing sending a tormenting spirit? Some older translations even translate this evil spirit, but that's not a good translation because the word doesn't refer to moral evil. It refers to a spirit that torments Saul. Now, I don't think you should derive from that sort of a whole kind of theology of when people are being tormented and that everybody who has depression or anxiety is obviously being tormented by a spirit sent from God. Now, don't draw that conclusion. This is a pretty unique situation, a unique situation with a unique guy who was anointed as king and who abandoned God and his ways. And part of God's judgment coming to him even now is this tormenting spirit. And yet even in the tormenting spirit being sent to him, God still gives him a degree of mercy. And the degree of mercy comes through whom? The true king. The true king here is a man of war. And you're going to find in the very next chapter, he's going to go up against Goliath. And we're going to talk about that story next week. Actually, the week after. Um, next week is Scotty, and then we're going to talk about that David and Goliath story. So he's a man of war. He's a, he's, a, he's a war hero. David is. Don't think of him as this nice little guy who just plays the harp. He's a man of war. He becomes the armor bearer for the king. But he also is the one who has the ability to bring soothing, healing relief. 
This is foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus is not just the one who says, there, there, everything's going to be okay. He's the one who, on the cross, shamed and humiliated his enemies. Colossians chapter 2, go read it. Even as he was being shamed, he was publicly humiliating the powers and the principalities. And he's the one who brings healing, relief. So, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? A couple of applications here as we close. God does not judge based on appearances. And this is so radically countercultural. God wants to set us free from the oppressive power of appearances. And I, I hope I don't have to belabor the point. It is oppressive. Have you seen that Dove commercial, the True Beauty sketches with the sketch artist? If you haven't seen it, let me tell you about this. It's a fascinating, amazing thing. And you should watch this three-minute video. It will make you cry. They, they basically bring in a sketch artist from the San Diego Police Department. So he's somebody that you describe, you know, the perpetrator or something, and he tries to draw a sketch so they can find the criminals, right? Well, they bring this guy in, and they bring in these women, and they're behind a screen. So the sketch artist can't see them. All he has is their description of themselves to work from. And so he draws based on how these women describe themselves. And you get to hear a few of their comments. And some of it is rather heartbreaking, but you don't really have an idea of what's coming. Then they bring in another person who really has actually only recently met the woman who's just described herself and been drawn. And then they ask that person to describe the woman as well. And then he draws another sketch based upon that. And then they bring in that woman who's been sketched and they have her look at the two sketches. And it's shocking. Because every one of the sketches that the women described themselves to the sketch artist is ugly. But every one of the sketches drawn based upon the, 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 the eyes of another is beautiful, kind, friendly looking, happy. Uh, Dove goes on in this, uh, in this commercial to say that only 4% of women in our culture would describe themselves as beautiful. 4%. Beauty, the idea of beauty is still so oppressive in our culture. And we need to be set free. And so we might take heart from this passage. Well, God doesn't look on appearances. God looks on the heart. But then you begin to think about that a little bit, and you begin to think about what else the Bible says about the heart, and you realize, uh-oh, that's actually not such good news, is it? I mean, Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond understanding. So when the Bible says God doesn't judge on appearances, but he looks on the heart, and then you understand what the Bible says about the heart, you go, oh my gosh, like, how can that be good news? How can I possibly impress God? I don't have anything in my heart to impress him. I can't impress him with what I look like. What am I going to do? And here's the good news. You can't do anything to impress God. You can't do anything to impress God. And neither can I. And that is good news. It's the best possible news. Because what keeps you in slavery is thinking that if you tried a little harder... If you dieted a little more, if you found just the right person to affirm you and to complete you, whatever it is, 
if you got a little more skilled at your instrument, whatever it is, you would finally be impressive. As long as you believe that lie, you're in complete bondage. And the only way God can bring freedom to you is to, is to basically show you that that whole project is impossible. It's impossible. God can set you free when you embrace that there's nothing you can do to impress him. When you can become confident that there is something more solid than your ability to impress God, only then will you ever be free. I was talking to a friend of mine. He does RUF up at Western Kentucky, and we were talking about, you know, the Greek system. And he said this. I don't say this much here at Belmont because it's still not that big a thing, but it's a little thing. He goes, here's what I always like to remind students there where Greek is a big thing at his school. He goes, look, even if you got a bid, even if you didn't get a bid, God still wants you, and so does RUF. Look, even if you got the audition you wanted, you can apply it in every way. Even if you're in the band you wanted to be in, even if you're in the major you wanted to be in, even if you're in the relationship that you want to be in, or you're not, God still wants you. And you don't have to impress him for him to want you. Right? Our hope, you see, now is the same as the hope was in David's day, and it's this. We have a God who intervenes. We have a God who intervenes. He rescued Israel from what looked good and seemed right by intervening. And he still does the same thing. Not just by speaking a definitive word like he did to Samuel, but by sending a despised Savior. God intervenes. He intervened where David by sending a definitive word. He intervenes for you and me, by sending a despised Savior. Jesus doesn't impress anybody. And that's why we read Psalm 118, verse 22. Do you know, maybe you'll get tested on this sometime in a Bible class, so I'll give you this answer right now. What Old Testament passage is the most quoted verse in the New Testament? Do you know that the New Testament quotes Old Testament passages quite a lot? The most quoted Old Testament passage by the New Testament is Psalm 118.22. Do you know what that says? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And you think, I don't know, if I did a, if, if I did a quiet time on that, I don't know if I'd get many warm fuzzies from that one. Just not, just not getting that. Listen, that, the reason that's the most quoted verse by the New Testament writers is because in the early church, trying to make sense of what the heck just happened, that was the only verse that seemed to make sense to them. It was their experience crystallized in a sentence. Jesus, Jesus, the one who everybody despised because, look, he's from our hometown. He can't be impressive. He's Joseph's son. We know this guy. He's from Bethlehem. Can anything good come from there? Right? You know, a prophet is without honor in his own country. And then it got worse and it got worse. Because as he hung on a cross, people said, look, he's cursed by God. And this one, rejected, became 
the chief cornerstone. You know, the cornerstone sort of is this fascinating thing. It's the stone that you lay first. It's the one upon your whole foundation stability is based upon that cornerstone being laid well. Jesus is that cornerstone. The only way you can be set free from the oppressive project of trying to impress God and others is if Jesus is your cornerstone. Jesus is your bedrock. But he's not a very impressive cornerstone or bedrock to the watching world. And for you to make him your cornerstone and your bedrock, you will have to go against the grain of your heart and your culture all the time. And that's why we invite you to be part of our community. That's why we invite you to come be part of these small groups so that we can pray together, walk together, and encourage each other as we walk this kind of crazy thing called the Christian life. That's why it's hard to explain to people because it's so upside down from the way everything works. But it's the truth. It's the truth. Jesus is the surprise of God. Don't miss the surprise of God. Don't be like the builders who rejected him. He might be the one who says things you don't like. He might be the one who does things you don't like. Don't reject the surprise of God. Follow him. Come to know him. Let's pray together.